Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. You're listening to episode number 87 of the Out of the Question podcast. By the time this airs, we will be in one of the most romantic times of the year as our culture celebrates romance in Valentine's Day. Steve, when we talked earlier about what the subject question would be this week, you suggested we delve into a remarkable paradox in our society. So why don't you frame the question? Well, the question we want to get to has to do with this this paradox, as you say, between the idealization of romance in our culture. We love dates, we love date nights, we love uh, romantic movies, all of these things that have to do with romance. But our culture is moving away from the idea of marriage. And so the question we want to ask is, why do we love romance but hate marriage? And to get to that, we're going to talk about St. Valentine, and we're going to bring back the ideas of of romance in their Christian perspective. Because I think one of the things that always strikes me is even in church circles, when you see large families, there's this frowny face that people come up like, don't they know how to, how, how babies are created? Like, wow, that's a lot of children or things like that. And yet if somebody were, had a lot of different, not so much in Christian cultures, but lots of different boyfriends or had, you know, played the field or whatever it is, somehow or other, the man who has had lots of people in his little black book when they used to have a black book is deemed much more to be commended than the man who's the father of six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's right. Well, they wouldn't use a black book today, Andrea. Now they have uh, Tinder accounts and Snapchats and Instagram likes. And so much of the modern culture, it shows popularity by showing themselves on these kind of social media platforms. It's romantic to post near naked pictures of yourself or even those people who are in uh, committed relationships, they document these things for the sake of, of other people. The idea of romance happens not only between a couple, but also uh, for the world. We have people who check into their romantic dinner, make everybody know that this is our six-month anniversary of dating, or they have their, their kissing picture, all these kind of pseudo-voyeuristic views of romance. Um, yet, if you ask these same people, when's the wedding date? Well, we're not ready for that kind of commitment, or we're still talking about getting our careers in line, or we're not ready yet for children. And yet they fetishize the idea of romance and forget completely what the purpose of godly romance is, and that is towards marriage. Romance separated from the commitment of true Christian love and matrimony uh, is not romantic at all. I I find it interesting that you use the word voyeuristic because it's like that, that we're supposed to peer into these scintillating relationships. And sometimes on Facebook, for example, you'll see one person, you know, expressing love and you're the most wonderful person. I can't imagine life without you. And you have to wonder and say, couldn't I just go in the next room and say that to somebody? I mean, why are they saying it on this social media platform? So, Let's explore a little bit about what St. Valentine's Day 
in the church calendar means and how it's been perverted as so many other religious holidays have. Right. Well, St. Valentine, you can trace him back to the third century. Uh, And so this is during the Roman persecution of Christians, especially under Emperor uh, Claudius II. And uh, Claudius had a real struggle conscripting uh, soldiers. And one of the things that emperors at this time did is they tried to use publicly hated religions as an excuse for the hatred of the state. So Romans were not necessarily popular with any of the the civic polity that they uh, governed. You know, they came in and they imposed their religion, their taxes, their military over the people. Um, And so they didn't make a lot of friends that way. And so the way that they would continue to exert influence was by conscripting soldiers. And uh, around the third century, it became difficult for Claudius to do this because of his expansive uh, military campaigns. And so what he did is he tried to blame uh, the Christian idea of matrimony or the Christian ideals of marriage for the poor subscription rates into the military. And so in response to this, he says, I'm going to ban all marriage and and engagements in this uh, empire until my military campaigns have been fulfilled. And whose fault is it? It's the Christian's fault. And uh, Valentine, who was a priest at this time, uh, continued to do marriages in secret. And eventually he's caught and executed. And in this kind of way, the day he's executed is February the 14th, which then becomes the the feast day of St. Valentine and associated with really a martyr for marriage. Now, part of the whole Valentine's cards and and hallmarkification of Valentine's Day comes from the life of St. Valentine as well. You know, before he's executed by Claudius, he sends these pastoral notes back to the members of his congregation, you know, telling them about the, the love of God for them, the hope that they have for the future. And there had these, you know, these third century Valentine's cards about how he was going to suffer death under the emperor's hand for the sake of Christian marriage and the Christian faith for what real love was. And so Christian identity has kind of carried this into even mainstream culture, associating love with these cards and with marriage and with St. Valentine's Day on February the 14th. How did Cupid get into the picture? <laughs> well, Cupid's a, a fun word because the, the etymology of the word Cupid is uh, related to the idea of lusting. So Cupid is long associated with one of the, the Greek words for love. Uh, you also hear this associated with like eros. But in old Greek mythology, uh, Cupid is one of these nymphs of erotic or romantic love. And I believe it's in one of Dr. Rushduni's books that he talks about the etymology of Cupid is very similar to the etymology of coveting. Even in English, you can see the, the cubidity or, or uh, coveting have this similar phonetic identity. And uh, Cupid was all about desiring your neighbor's wife, to use you know, biblical terms. And so coveting and cupidity kind of get merged together here as the pagans kind of misuse the idea of romance. They misdirect it away from marriage towards you know, erotic relationships. And uh, interestingly enough, if you were to 
rewrite the, the Hebrew Ten Commandments at the time of the fourth century, you probably would have said, instead of don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't Cupid your neighbor's wife. Yet today, if you are going to go get your wife a Valentine's Day card, there's a good chance that you're going to have Cupid right there on the cover, a symbol of extramarital identity <laughs> and <laughs> wow. uh, be associated with like love and happiness and true romantic ideals, uh, which is kind of the irony of, of these conflation of holidays. And what's even more ironic is that even today, when we are going to talk about Christian marriage, oftentimes within the context of the violations of that covenant in terms of one spouse committing adultery, what you see played out in the public sphere in terms of movies or novels or whatever is one person saying to the other, yes, but I didn't love her or, Mm -hmm. but it didn't mean anything. And how remarkable that that, the excuse that's supposed to be the acceptable one trashes the covenant of marriage. So really, I'm not sure we would even talk about biblical romance, except, you know, you've got the Song of Solomon. And so it's a little hard not to talk about romance, because those are the kinds of things that and the, the, the images that you see. But how do you think we restore the idea and not train our children to look for the romantic kind of love that's put forth today. Well, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this uh, idea in the in his Cost of Discipleship where he talks about cheap grace, right? And he says, cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance. Uh, cheap grace is, he says, baptism without excommunication or baptism without church discipline. It's having Holy Communion without confession. He says that Uh, The grace of God always has a responsibility with it. It always has a cost with it. It's not cheap. It's costly. And I think that American romantic ideals have a cheap view of love. I mean, think about Valentine's Day and how you express your devotion. It's cheap. It's impersonal. Uh, How did the standard fall so low that the the way that you show that you love your wife, the mother of your children, or the girl you'd like to woo to be your wife for the rest of your life, that chocolate and some flowers become like the ideal of devotion, that exchanging a few dollars, that's how we really show uh, love and commitment. Uh, That's a similar type of thinking. This, it's a cheapening or the impersonalization of love. It, It doesn't require any type of repentance or discipline or confession or responsibility to give somebody chocolate flowers, go on a date. Because what modern American romantic ideals are is about satisfaction without submission, love without crucifying the self. Even looking at uh, the marital identity, uh, people get married for the convenience of well, now I don't have to compete for my sexual partner anymore. They, they put the, the cheap love, the cheap romance above any idea of true commitment. And so St. Valentine's Day is a great opportunity to talk about real commitment, to say, you know, what would you be willing to do for your marriage? How much is it really worth? Is there a cost that you're willing to bear to make sure that your marriage is something of value? Uh, Or is it just, again, this uh, frenetic or 
a fleeting sense of emotional, romantic, emotional jubilation that you're after, and you really don't care about the future of, of Christian marriage. Right. Just as a trivial point in my marriage, my husband learned a long time ago that he's absolutely forbidden to get me any gift, any flowers on Valentine's Day. He often gets joked where he works saying, so have you done your Valentine shopping? And he says, no, I'm not allowed to. And some of the men he works with are like, wow, you're lucky. (laughs) He says, but the flip side of that is that my wife likes it if I surprise her that there's no particular day that I'm celebrating, but there are flowers that I show her that I was thinking about her. So he always feels quite off the hook on February 14th. And I, I think that there probably is a case to be made for giving chocolates, for giving flowers, for remembering those little tokens. Uh, but the, I guess the danger in a lot of these things is it makes marriage into a transaction or uh, a commute. You know, you, you see the person as somebody who you're, you're going to do these X, Y, and Z, then in exchange, perhaps you'll have uh, dinner together or you'll you'll add to the value of the relationship. Perhaps uh, a married couple uses this as their annual time when they remember the vows of, of their wedding bed. There's this strange idea that we're like machines, right? And if we do things in the right sequence at the right time of the year, uh, then our partner will respond the correct way. But a Christian marriage cannot be kind of this transactional identity. It can't be, I showed up, I put in my hours, or I showed up and I put in my chocolate and flowers, and now they have to (laughs) do the thing I want them to do on on the night of Valentine's Day. Uh, The romance has to be modeled after Christ's own self-giving devotion. It has to be in the spirit of St. Valentine. It has to be something that is not just this cheap gift once a year. It has to be Uh, more like an adventure. Uh, Christian marriage looks at what Christ has done for us, of course, uh, but it looks looks at what Christ has done for your marriage. Those of you who have been married for 10, 20, 30 years can see both high points and low points in the marriage. And the strength of the marriage is not determined by the number of high points or where you're at right now, but whether the place that you're going to is an adventure for both of you, uh, an adventure towards Christ's own uh, purpose for your marriage. And that's really uh, the romantic part, that that God is using your partner uh, to transform you, uh, whether you're the husband or the wife, uh, that your marriage is a picture of your own sanctification, that when you, you are told by Jesus, you're my holy bride, without wrinkle, spot, or blemish, That's an allegory or an analogy that's meant to be applied to your own marriage. Now, the the wrinkle, spot, and blemishes in our salvation are worked out through the blood of Christ. But the wrinkle, spots, and blemishes in our marriage are worked out through conflict. They're not worked out through chocolates and flowers. They're worked out through growth. And sometimes growth is painful, and sometimes growth is ruckus. (laughs) But there there is an idea of Christian marriage and romance is that we're not we're not looking at the high point as date night and a movie and flowers and chocolate. Christian marriage is so much greater than that. And going back to the analogy part, 
it's the marriage is analogous to the relationship of Christ and his church. And so that's not one where one or the other woos the other. We don't, you know, we're, we're not the one bringing flowers to Jesus and saying, you know, come into my heart. I invite you. We miss the glorious aspect of the relationship with Christ in the church. And then instead of applying it, we, we try to go the other way. And I, I just don't think the other way holds up. Right. No, it's, and it's true. And that's why the uh, the vows of marriage are, are very important. Maybe it's it's time for Valentine's Day to be time that we remember those those certain vows we did make at our marriage to to love and obey, to honor through sickness and in health. All of these things that we we say at traditional marriages that are are meant not to be uh, commitments for that day only, but to be promises for the rest of our life. It's it's a remarkable testimony uh, for young people, myself being one of them, when I meet Christian adults who have been married for 40, 50, 60 years. I think it's more powerful than uh, any evangelist because it says that there is still hope for stability and there's still hope for love in this world. If Christ can hold two people together in marriage and grow them and, and make them into one person, that's a powerful picture for a culture that doesn't believe that that can last a week or a month and is unwilling to make those kind of commitments. And we're going to see that the Valentine pseudo-romance that our generation has embraced is going to lead to a whole bunch of moral issues uh, 20 and 30 years from now. Uh, as people struggle with childlessness, as they struggle with uh, not finding their contentment in this world, their lack of satisfaction with the choices that they've made. And the church is going to have to deal with a whole generation of people who have regret for not looking for romance uh, in Christ's terms, but in their own selfish terms. This goes back to using biblical terms as opposed to secularized versions. I don't think there's any place you're going to find in scripture that you're supposed to refer to your spouse as a sweetheart. You see, your sweetheart can be anybody, right, if it's not within the context of marriage. So we have to elevate wife and husband, again, to be the terms by which we speak to children. So someday you're going to be someone's wife. Someday you're going to be someone's husband. And the Bible is very specific about what those roles and what those duties are and not get away with the cheapened version of saying, be my sweetheart. And so you have, you know, seven-year-olds exchanging Valentine's cards. I don't even know they know what that means, right? right? But it certainly doesn't say, be my future wife, be my future husband. Well, sometimes we hope they don't know what it means because <laughs> in high school, we're, we're pretty sure we knew what it meant and it was the wrong thing. But I think you make a good point uh, with this, this title, wife. And it's more than just that. The, the scripture describes the wife as, you know, the, the apple of your eye. And this is true whether your, your wife is, is a 10 out of 10 drop-dead gorgeous or uh, you guys have been married for, for 40 years and this is your wife you have now. She's still supposed to be uh, the apple of your eye. And uh, St. Valentine's Day is maybe a good reminder for what that's supposed to mean for us. And I think the, the apple part of that, because there's a fruit attached to that, is a very strong biblical symbol. 
Because if you look at the very first husband and wife, Adam and Eve, uh, there's a fruit associated in their story. And I like to explain that, that old Adam, the first Adam, he had this responsibility. His idea of, of romance that he had was to protect, to guard, to dress, to nurture uh, his garden helper, Eve. And he was called to you know, shelter her. And you can see this language from the Old Testament to the New Testament that, that husbands lead, protect, guide, nurture your wives, lift them up, see them really as something to be treasured. And Adam's great fall uh, is not uh, necessarily in listening to Eve tempt him with the fruit, but failing to protect Eve in the garden from the snake, protect him from the sin that was entering in his own household. Uh, Valentine's Day for husbands is reminder that your wife is something for you to protect and to cherish. And now, since we're in the new Adam in Christ, made new priests of a new garden, your home, you have this opportunity this Valentine's Day uh, to wash your wife in Christ's love, to be the redeemed garden protector, to do the things through Christ that Adam was not able to do for Eve, to earn your wife's devotion, respect, adoration by protecting her from this world, by demonstrating your, your true love for her. I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that the takeaway that I hope people get from listening to this is how important it is to know the history of the church. Um, I dare say most people, if they knew anything that there was a St. Valentine, would not understand that he went to his death because he continued to preside over two people coming together in covenant before God. That's something that I wasn't fully aware of. So it, it's, it's good to know because our heritage is quite rich. Well, and I think the other part of it is that there is a healthy sense of romance and adventure in marriage. Uh, during this time of year, every year on, on Facebook, a, a bunch of new memes or, or pictures come up on the internet talking about how it's imagine a Puritan Valentine's Day card. And because we typically imagine the Puritans as being these, these stodgy and uh, reserved, hostile to sexuality people, um, we have these funny cards that say, you know, uh, be mine, you're totally irresistible, strange things that uh, kind of paint a, a non-romantic view of romance. Uh, a, a non-emotional view of romance. But Christians throughout history, uh, especially even in the early days through the Puritan days, any time when there is a focus on the gospel, there's a focus on the family and marriage. Uh, because the Puritans believed that everything God was naturally good, they believed that marriage was the best, the good. It was the restoration of what was lost. And so they weren't hostile to real marital intimacy. In fact, they saw the marriage relationship as something to be protected. They saw children as a blessing uh, from God on that thing. And they encouraged uh, men and women to embrace that marital identity. You know, it's one thing to, to notice that there's a natural affection towards marriage, right? Men and women 
have this natural passion that needs to be contained in marriage. But the second thing to say that God intended for this passion to be enjoyed and embraced by men and women. And so C.S. Lewis often described, you know, Christianity that was too good to be true, that the world wants to be sourpuss about everything. The world wants to cheapen everything. The world wants to take the joy out of even marriage. It wants to make it only about sex or it makes to make it only about emotional connections. But the Puritan view or this, this great Christian view of marriage says, here is something that God has created for you. Taste and see, enjoy, take. You know, this is uh, something that we've often missed because we're too prudish uh, or we're too much like the world. Exactly. I've heard it said, rather than love sustaining marriage, that it's more likely that marriage sustains love. And that goes back to the people who have survived decades in close union with imperfect other people. I've told this story before, but I remember on our seventh anniversary, my husband and I were in a yogurt shop and there was this old couple there and and we were sort of smiling and this guy says, so what exactly are you celebrating? And we said, oh, this is our seventh anniversary. And it turned out this couple had been married for like 60 years. And he looked at my husband and said, you won't even know her till 25. And it's true. It's it, your, your spouse is not just going to change, but they're going to become somebody different because that's what the Lord's intending for your marriage to do. It's not this static idea. That's why it's so wrong for us to teach uh, children to kind of have these strange arbitrary standards for what they need to get married of, of figuring out who the ideal spouse is because they're going to change. The real important part is to find a Christian partner who has the same vision for uh, your future and then build that together because I'm sure you and Ford and, and Sarah and I, we both have very different personalities, interests, uh, things that we enjoy in different seasons of our life. Um, but the beauty of marriage is that we're able to have a commitment that is long lasting and greater than any particular season or interest in our life. Which goes back to it better be more than 10 out of 10 in terms of how you're going to rate somebody's looks, because as you grow old together, you change. There are various circumstances that happen in life, but it's that commitment that brings strength. And of course, in every marriage, there should be a third partner, and that's Jesus Christ. Yes, and, and that's, that's very important uh, because what we see happening uh, to marriage and to singleness today is really a reversal of the Reformation. So much in the Reformation was focused on the joy of celibacy, and a lot of that was kind of monastic identity, but a lot of it was just selfishness, and we see that happening today as well. Uh, instead of celibacy being around the church and monks taking their private time, we have this new pseudo-celibacy where, where people do a career for 20 years and then they think about marriage. What they have done is they've devalued the grace that one experiences in marriage. Uh, in traditional churches, this was called a sacramental right, marriage, matrimony, because it allowed you to get a peek into uh, God's salvation in a different angle. And so whether you're a, a 
following the reformers Luther or Calvin, you'll see that along with all of their theological reformation always came an emphasis on marriage. Calvin was married. Luther was married because they saw uh, what was coming out of there was this kind of combination of an emphasis on marriage with a emphasis on a Christian future. They recognized that the future of a reconstructed society depended on the family and everything else singleness, selfishness, false romance, tries to tear apart that fabric. And Reformation Christians always try to put the marriage at the center of all of the church life. Amen to that. All right. Any recommendations on things that our listeners might or should peruse in terms of reading material? Well, there's. Uh, if you want to know more about St. Valentine... There's a few great articles that I've uh, written over at kapirian.com. Uh, one is called Who Was St. Valentine? There's another one on uh, the kind of this idea of Christian marriage informed by St. Valentine. Uh, George Grant has also written some articles that kind of describe how the Valentine's Day tradition came to be a part of our Christian tradition. Um, and obviously, if you want to really understand the idea of how grace and responsibility fit together to make True grace, as opposed to cheap grace, uh, the cost of discipleship by, uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer is very important to that. Very good. Well, listeners, thanks for letting us share with you again. If you have any ideas, comments, questions on future topics that, we would, that you would like us to discuss, get a hold of us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Steve, once again for a good lesson in history. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.